I will be reading Psalm 68, verses 32 through 35. Psalm 68, verse 32 through 35. Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. Sing praise to the Lord, to him who rides across the highest heavens, the ancient heavens, who thunders with mighty voice. Proclaim the power of God, whose majesty is over Israel, whose power is in the heavens. You, God, are awesome in your sanctuary. The God of Israel gives power and strength to his people. Praise be to God. Good morning. In our lesson today, we are in chapter 27 of the story. I hope you're still reading through with us on this. Um, We go to the garden, to that empty tomb that we find, and it just changed everything. Because the last chapter we we read uh, two weeks ago where we studied the day where Jesus was crucified and all hope was lost and it was a dark day. And Christ's enemies had to be satisfied that for them their their mission was accomplished because Jesus was dead. And we know the Roman centurion's job was to make certain that whoever was on the cross, he didn't know them necessarily, but that was his job, that was his chore, that was his occupation, to to make sure they were dead. And so if the crucifixion wasn't enough, they rammed a spear into a side for good measure. When I think about all this, I think all the religious leaders of that day had to be just rejoicing at 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 that moment, at that event, just secretly celebrating at all that they had accomplished over the last, I don't know, maybe 16 hours. No more would they have to deal with public rebukes coming from Jesus. No more would they have to hear His bizarre teaching about loving your enemies and even praying for them. No more would they have awkward moments because of things He did or those flamboyant reactions in the temple when He was turning things upside down. No more Jesus. So you could use a lot of words to describe the religious leaders of Jesus' day at this moment just after the crucifixion. Maybe relieved. Maybe joyful, maybe even prideful. After all, they reasoned that this man couldn't have been the Messiah. Couldn't have been. How could God let His own Son be killed? That makes no sense. I mean, it just doesn't... It's ludicrous. It's senseless. But in this case, it was neither. It was love. And we know that. There's one more word you could use to describe the, the leaders of, that, of Jesus' day at this period of time, and that is nervous. See, he, he was dead, but they knew it wasn't over yet. Look on the screen or open your Bibles if you'd like to in Matthew 27. Matthew paints the picture here. The next day, this is the day after Christ's death. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, We remember that while he was still alive, the deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he had been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Now, if you crossed that line, if you tampered with that seal, the governor's protected area, you were as good as dead. So they did all that they could. And as it's strange that these religious leaders, isn't it ironic 
They seem to know more than Jesus' own followers about what Jesus claimed. They were aware that on the third day, He said He's coming back. Days earlier, on the night of the rest, when the heat is on, the disciples melted. Melted. They had no plans to steal the body. They weren't thinking that way. They were depressed, weren't they? Frightened. Confused. Distraught. Grief-stricken. A lot of words we could put in there. Max Lucado said it like this. They cowered in Jerusalem's cupboards and corners for fear of the cross that bore their name. That's what's going on. But as we read the Gospels, it seems to us that the disciples shouldn't have given up hope. At least for three more days. And a lot of what He spoke to them several times about it being killed, and after three days coming back to life, repeatedly He told them this message. It wasn't just a one time and they weren't listening. He, he mentioned it many times. But then again, was He talking about His body or was He talking about the temple? Because He kind of talked about it in code sometimes. Was it literal? Was it figurative? What did He really mean? I don't know. You can imagine where they would have been confused. And in their defense... His popularity had gone from way up there to no more. I mean, there were thousands who were there just saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord of the triumphal entry. Just a few days earlier to now, he's gone. He's dead. Nobody. Jesus is in the tomb, guarded by the soldiers. And the guards were posted there not out of honor. This is not something out of respect for the deceased. It was out of fear. They did not want the disciples to steal the body. Now, there have been a lot of attempts throughout the, the centuries of explaining the empty grave. A lot of different theories. What could it could have been? One supposed theory is called the swoon theory. You probably studied that before. Where Jesus didn't really die. He, he kind of like fainted. You know, it was very grueling what all went on, but they, they, they supposed that he didn't die. He just sort of fainted, kind of passed out. And so there they laid him in the tomb and maybe the cool air revived him. He pushed the stone away, caught up with the, got past the guards, don't miss that one, caught up with the disciples and they nursed him back to health. J. Vernon McGee, a biblical scholar, received a letter from a woman one time Mr. McGee, our preacher, said that Jesus just swooned on the cross, that he didn't really die, that the disciples helped him get back to his healthy state. What do you think about that? J. Vernon McGee wrote back and said, Dear sister, beat your preacher with a heavy whip 39 times, nail him to a cross, hang him in the sun for six hours, run a spirit through his heart, place him in an airless tomb for three days, and tell me what happens. Jesus made an appearance. Not just one, multiple appearances after He came back from the grave. Not just the ones the Bible tells us about. We know there were more. More of them is seen by over 500 people. He didn't hide out. It wasn't just a handful of disciples that secretly saw Him when nobody else was looking. Over and over and over again. For 40 days, He appeared to them. Look at John 20, verse 19 and 20. It tells us about one of these appearances. On the evening of that first day of the week, so this is that Sunday night, 
when the disciples were together, get this, when the doors were locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, do you get the sense of what's going on here? They're still scared. So they've gathered on that Sunday night. They're locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Don't you know that was a marvelous moment? Don't you know it was just one of those, they just want to capture it. Just forever remember seeing the risen Lord. But there was one disciple who wasn't there. We remember that detail. Do you remember? It was Thomas. So when he returned, oh, you missed it, Thomas? He was here. Jesus was here. I wish you could have been here. And what does Thomas think? What's going on in his mind? Thomas didn't believe them. Now let me just say this. You wouldn't have either. Nor would have I. Because it just seemed too good to be true. Earlier that day, they'd heard about Mary Magdalene spouting some bizarre stories. She was the first one there. She saw the empty tomb. She'd seen Jesus. And now Thomas is thinking, okay, not just some crazy woman. All these others, my good friends, they're, they're hallucinating. They're buying into this story. Thomas looks at them. You remember, unless I touch his side, unless I see the scars, I will not believe. You ever been like a Thomas? You want to believe, but to do so, you have to see. You want to see it with your own eyes. You're doing everything but saying, God, give me a sign. I, I want to see. We can relate with Thomas. You have more questions than answers. You know what you've been told. You know what you read in the Bible, but what does it really mean? Well, let me say I'm glad you're here. And I hope that you will listen to this truth of Scripture and really see the answer to life's most important question. Did Jesus come back from the dead? Because if you keep listening and studying what the Bible says, you're going to come to the same conclusion that Thomas did. In fact, everything changed for him. Look at John 20, verse 26 and following. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, and put it to my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. I want to share this morning three results of the resurrection. Three things, so if you're following, fill in the blanks, you can follow along. Number one, the resurrection vindicated Jesus. The resurrection vindicated Jesus. Christ conquering death was the ultimate I was right moment. It was the ultimate I told you so. It was the expression of who He was. It was the fulfillment of all that He had promised. I like the way Roger Storm said it. He says, the resurrection of Jesus is His autograph of authenticity. See, the fact that He came back from the grave means everything He said is true. You can believe it. And there's so much evidence to validate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lee Strobel came to Murfreesboro last week, and I, I went to hear him, and he wrote in his book, The Case for Christ, he talks about Sir Lionel Lucku. He's a brilliant, uh, was a brilliant, savvy attorney. 245 successful cons uh, consecutive murder acquittals. Because of that, he's in the Guinness Book of World Records. Knighted as a, uh, twice by the Queen Elizabeth. This former justice and dis, uh, diplomat subjected all the historical facts about the resurrection under his analysis for years. And then he said this, 
I say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. I want you to think about the evidence. I put a couple of blanks on your study guide. And this is not all of them, but a couple I just want to bring to, to your, for you to think about that prove the resurrection. Number one, you have the, sto- uh, the staying power of story. Think about that. The staying power of story. This wasn't some flash in the pan. This wasn't some fad. This wasn't some leader who came and burned bright and then he's gone. Our entire calendar system is based on the truth of Jesus Christ. How about all the changed lives, the personal testimony of people who have given their life to Him and have been forever changed? But I know you hear these things and if you don't say them, you hear others say them. There's a skeptic in all of us. There are a lot of kooks out there who believe some weird stuff. And it's true, isn't it? There's a lot of weird stuff going on out there. Let's go one step more. Number two, what about the response of Christ's enemies? You need to take note of this, not just of his followers, but also notice his enemies, both before his resurrection and afterwards, because they fear that what Jesus has said and what's going to happen. They knew that if the disciples had not stolen his body, that it was just going to be a big mess. They would promote that story in order to save face. They're going to do anything. But here's the reality. They still couldn't explain the earthquake. They still couldn't explain the darkness. The Bible doesn't tell us anything. History doesn't tell us anything about killing the guards. Why didn't they kill the guards? That would have been the ultimate because they failed on their job. Did they believe the guards' story? Number three, what about the power of prophecy? This concept of prophecy is one of the strongest proofs we have. The fact that Jesus was resurrected was prophesied so many years before, in so many ways, so many different people, it's just irrefutable. Look at 2 Peter 1.16, For we did not allow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. See, when you see something, you believe it. Look at verse 21. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets through humans spoke from God as they had carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, it wasn't man's idea. This was God's idea. This was God's doing. Now, skeptics of Christianity used to explain away the resurrection by saying this. Where do we get all this? We get it from our Bible. That's what the Bible tells us. When was the Bible written? Most of it was written after Jesus had come and gone. That's when the Bible was put together. And so it would be so easy just to insert these stories, these prophecies of Jesus after He had come and gone. That's how they defended that. But something happened in 1947, not that long ago, 1947, that blows that argument away. There's an area in the Holy Lands by the Dead Sea. It's called Qumran. Qumran. You've heard of that before. Look on the screen. You can see the picture of it. It's a desolate area there. Back in 1947, there was a shepherd boy just killing time, throwing rocks into a a cave opening. Look at the next slide. You can see the actual slide there. You can see the the opening of the cave. And when he was throwing rocks in there, just, just passing time, he heard some pottery break. So they went in and discovered, and what they found was inside this pottery was a whole library 
of scrolls. It was the ultimate find because what they found when they got the professionals in there, the experts, it was the largest collection of ancient manuscripts, including the Old Testament. Experts came in and they dated it, going all the way back three to four hundred years before the birth of Christ. And you know what was found in those Dead Sea Scrolls? The prophecies of Jesus being born of a virgin. Born in Bethlehem, being betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver, being silent at his trial, executed among thieves. His enemies would cast lots for his clothing. He'd be laid in a brand new tomb. He would raise from the dead. It was all right there. It wasn't inserted after the fact. The Dead Sea Scrolls stand as undeniable testimony to the truth and the power of prophecy. Well, number four, what about the eyewitness accounts? Not just for those who are close to Jesus, but for dozens of other people. The Bible tells us at one time He appeared to 500 at once. What about the 120 that were there when Jesus did His final miracle of ascending into heaven? Over and over and over. Again, some think, well, these disciples just got together and made up these stories. Okay, what are we going to say? What's our story? Let's kind of get our story together and we've got to make sure that we're consistent. We've got to stick to it. We've got to keep our story. That's our story. Let's stick with it. But to me, the strongest proof of the resurrection is the fact almost every one of these died a martyr. And you would think after all their teaching after all they had done, when it was that moment of torture, when they were about to lose their life, one of them would crack. One of them would break. And say, no, we, we just made it up. It's all a farce. But not one of them did. They'd heard Christ's teachings. They'd witnessed His miracles. They'd heard His promise of the resurrection. And after His death, and burial, they saw the resurrected Lord. So much so, they gave everything up. And when it came their time, they held fast. Well, how much did they believe? Let me walk you through just a few. Maybe you've heard of some of these before. The Bible tells us, you know this one, that James was beheaded for his faith. But in addition to the Bible, there are numerous stories in Jewish history. Josephus, one of the most respected first century uh, writers, historians, shows that nearly every apostle died a brutal death. Some by sword, some by spear, some by stoning. Sources tell us Simon Peter was crucified upside down, and we wonder why. History tells us because he says, I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same way Jesus was. Then Tertullian claimed that Caesar Domitian tried to burn the apostle John alive. And it didn't work. It so freaked him out. He was banished to the Isle of Patmos. Add up all this evidence. You learn a lot about a person's life by the way they face death. Look at Acts 1 verse 3. It says of Jesus, After His suffering, He presented Himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that He was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke of the kingdom of God. And when you study this verse, the, the Greek word chosen here for, for convincing proofs, this is the NIV. Your, your Bible may have a different word there, but in the Greek, what that means is strong, infallible, irrefutable testimony or evidence. It's the one and only time that word appears, that Greek word appears in our New Testament. 
Well, number two, here's the second result of the resurrection. It defeated death. See, the enemies of Jesus Christ did not try to claim the empty tomb was a myth. Because they couldn't. Everybody knew that. They just said the disciples stole the body. Winston Churchill was a strong leader. We all know that. But did you know that he was a believer in Jesus Christ? I always enjoy reading about Churchill, his, his leadership, but also his unique sense of humor. He was known to have a running war of words with um, a woman named Lady Astor. No matter what she said, he seemed to always have a comeback. Several of these are recorded. There's one time where she said, Mr. Churchill, if you were my husband, I would poison your coffee. And he just simply said, Lady Astor, if you were my wife, I would drink it. You've got to love somebody like that, you know. But he was a believer. At his funeral, he pre-planned everything, which is always a good thing for those who are left behind to try to figure out what's the best thing. But here's what he planned. He had a bugler high above the dome at St. Paul's Cathedral play taps. And that happened. And then there was a moment of silence. You know taps. It's over. It's done. It's a moment of reverent respect. We know the tune. And then there was a moment of silence. And then, at Churchill's request, there was another bugler, the far side of the dome, that began to play Reveille. You remember that tune? Get up! Let's go! It's morning! Why? If you are a believer in the empty tomb, you know why. Death is not the end. Death is the beginning. Really, it's just getting started. That's why he would choose something like that. You see, you will encounter problems in this life, but what we know is death is not the end. The best is yet to come. And if you know the end of the story, then you're not overly concerned about some of the details of the in-between and how this plot kind of plays out. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not so good. But death has no hold over me. Christ has conquered the grave. We have an eternal perspective. Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. So will your future have problems if you believe in Jesus? Yes, it will. It's not an escape from that. But so are your present. When you give your life to Jesus, all your problems in this life don't go away. But the cross shows Christ's love. And the empty tomb shows His power. Well, here's our third one. The third result. The resurrection restored hope. Restored hope. See, death is the ultimate slap in the face. It's the ultimate just, just kick in the backside. It just... See, nobody escapes it. Everybody dies. Rich, poor, old we know, but sometimes young. But everybody dies. Jesus died. Everybody dies. So we better find an answer for death. So let me kind of wrap up with this. And I want to draw your attention to that first person who saw our resurrected Lord. Why, to me, this stands out as such a strong evidence for the resurrection. See, we might read it straight out of the Bible and not catch what's really going on. It's about a woman. A woman named Mary Magdalene, who had quite a past. I don't know how much you know about her, but it's significant. No small detail 
that a woman was the first one there. And the reason why that's a big deal and why we need to think about that is because a woman's testimony was not even admissible in court. You know, even in our day, we understand where sometimes maybe the, uh, the prosecuting attorney will, will, will bring in some witness and maybe they're incarcerated or, or they have a, a long rap sheet and, and part of the defense will say, well, how can you believe them? You know, they're a liar. I mean, look at them. They have no character. And, and yet, their testimony is at least admitted into court and then you decide whether you believe it or not. In this day, in Jesus' day, a woman would not even be allowed to testify. So why would God allow the very first person to go to the tomb be a woman that nobody would believe? See, we're going to read it through our own 21st century lenses, but let's go back in time. See, if you were fabricating a lie and you wanted to get people to believe you, why would you go and get the first one to see it to be someone that everybody's just going to throw out? It makes no sense at all. That's not the way God unfolded the story. As one of my favorite preachers says, the Bible doesn't read like a lie. Because it's the truth. Look in John 20, beginning verse 11. This is Sunday morning. The Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. They ask her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. We don't know why there. We don't know, was he maybe concealed in some way? Maybe he changed his voice a little bit. Look at verse 15. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. It's like the ultimate name that you could call him. Mary Magdalene had buried more than a friend. She, she had buried the only one who had really been there for her. See, Mark's Gospel gives us some insight to her background, to her resume, and it's not very good. It wasn't very appealing. In Mark 16, it tells us that Jesus had healed Mary Magdalene of seven demons. Can you imagine... Your life, I don't think we can understand. And what does it mean that there was not just one, but seven? Does that mean there were seven? You know, in the Bible, sometimes in Scripture, seven doesn't just mean seven, it means complete. Does that mean just totally taken over? What would this have done to Mary, just as a person? How people related to her? Was she an outcast? Was she accepted by her family? How could she exist Can we imagine that? The labels. Her life. And then Jesus came along and instead of shunning her, He heals her. 
and he changes her forever. No one else would give her the time of day, but Jesus did. And I want you to notice something. She was so devoted to him that even after death, there she is, the first one at the tomb. And I want you to look at her words there. They have taken away my Lord. They've taken away my Lord. See, thousands called him my Lord as he came into Jerusalem. A dozen called him a Lord in that upper room as he washed their feet. When everyone thought he was dead and buried, it's over. Mary Magdalene is first there calling him my Lord. So she goes to the tomb that morning wanting to put spices on his body. She makes this journey. Everybody else is asleep. And look at her words to this man. She thinks he's the gardener. Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will go get him. What's she thinking? How is a woman going to go get a 175-pound man, dead weight, and go get his body? See, she's not thinking with logic. She's thinking with love. I don't know if Jesus disguised His voice when He says, why are you crying? But something happened when He said her name, Mary. Here's the point. Jesus knows your name. He knows your name. And what He wants more than anything is for you to believe. Because all of this, His teaching, His miracles, His example, His death, His burial, His resurrection, all of it isn't not just for Mary. It's for you too. One last verse. Look at Romans 8-11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. Do you get that? If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. See, the power of God was not just for the resurrection of Jesus. It's for the resurrection of everyone who believes in Jesus. It's the same power in every one of us. So the question really is whether or not you really believe. Do you believe? There are some of you who've never turned your life over to Jesus Christ. And if you come to church often, you know we'll talk about baptism. We've got a baptistry right here front and center. And there's a reason why we talk about it all the time. And it's not just because, well, it's what you do when you're a Christian. In baptism, what you deal with there, what you experience is your own death, your own burial, your own resurrection, and a new life. It is a command of God. But it's not about the water. It's not about getting wet. It's not about being seen by people. It's about surrendering to your Lord. We're going to sing a song to encourage you to like Mary, be able to say, my Lord. Whatever your next step, maybe for you it's baptism, maybe for you it's just the prayers of one of our shepherds, whatever your next step is, won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage you.